By 2017, opioids caused more deaths per year than the HIV AIDS epidemic did at its peak in the 1990s and caused more deaths from car crashes or guns. Further, the crisis seems to be particularly intense in Ohio, West Virginia, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. Why is this the case? What are the causes of these soaring statistics and what can be done to alleviate the opioid crisis? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond Bias podcast, The Open-Minded Perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Craig Albert, Associate Professor of Political Science at Augusta University. Today, we are talking to Dr. Neil McKinnon, Provost of Augusta University. A pharmacist, Provost McKinnon has practiced in both the community and hospital settings. In 2010, he co-authored a national best-selling book in Canada called Take As Directed. His fourth book, which we're talking about today a little bit, on the opioid crisis will be published in late 2021. Welcome, Dr. McKinnon. All right. Thanks, Dr. Albert. Let's get right into it. Can you briefly describe the crisis? Why is there an opioid crisis? I can't say the word. So why <laughs> is there an opioid crisis? And what is it exactly? What, you know, what do we mean? I've heard some call it an opioid endemic or right. pandemic itself. Like, what does all that mean? Yeah, and if you think about it, you know, right now with, with COVID-19, um, you know, most most folks are aware that's considered a public health crisis, right? Um, because it's, it really kind of impacts our um, everything we kind of do as a, as a society. So just before kind of COVID-19, we had another public health crisis in this country, which is continuing today, again, which is this opioid crisis. And, you know, opioids themselves aren't necessarily good or bad. Um, most of them um, were, were developed to, to treat pain. Uh, if you think of, you know, a lot of individuals have significant pain, whether it's cancer, you have wisdom teeth pulled by, you know, a dentist. So there's, there's a need for these drugs. The challenge is that uh, in many ways they were kind of misprescribed over a number of years, potentially even misrepresented by, by pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And then uh, synthetic uh, opioids have also been developed um, and uh, some of those, we, you know, we can explore a little bit more in this podcast, but have really caused uh, challenges as well. And, and fentanyl uh, is, is another uh, one of those drugs. So it's a, it's a combination. And in, in many cases, they're prescribed legally, but they've just been kind of overprescribed. And, and, and again, they're, they're highly addictive. That's, that's the other thing, right? So Is the crisis more on people... Who, who are overusing or misusing legally? I mean, they're prescribed to them, or is it more of uh, people on the streets getting them or friends trading pills or something like that? Like, where's yeah. the worst part of this? You know, and actually how you frame this, to be honest, it's, it's a bit about both. So it's not, you know, so certainly, um, you know, drug dealers use opioids just like they would use, um, you know, many other, because they're highly addictive, right? So the the idea is you get folks addicted and then they come to you and you can you can sell them. And that's certainly been part of the, the process. But part of it would be, again, someone who maybe goes to the dentist, gets their wisdom teeth pulled. The, the dentist prescribes, uh, you know, opioids. They go to the pharmacy, they get a fill, they start taking it. And essentially, then they, they become addicted. Uh, could be other things like, you know, someone has chronic back pain. Again, they've tried everything, you know, they go to their doctor and, and they um, become chronically addicted to that. So it really touches every aspect of society, every demographic, uh, people that receive those drugs legally through a prescription or illegally, you know, th through a, a drug dealer. Are there any type of main indicators of potential abuse or, or addiction? Is it if you're you know, drink heavily or something, you might be more prone to be addicted to pills once you start taking them? Or is it is it a, a subset onto itself with the causal variables for addiction for opioids? 
Yeah, you know, a lot of that's a great question. So a lot of research has just gone into, you know, why is it that some individuals become more addicted, right? And you kind of think of almost anything in life, whether it's, you know, uh, gambling, right? Or or anything, you know, why is it that some people become more addicted? And clearly, there is a genetic factor. Mm. Um, it's certainly, again, not the entire doesn't explain 100%. But that is is part of it. And, you know, I think, um, just in the last maybe two decades, a lot more understanding of what are those factors. And, and again, how can we kind of proactively w- watch for those too? Uh, you can kind of think of it if you were a physician, even again, prescribing a pain medication, wouldn't it be good to know if like, this, this patient A has, you know, maybe a 40% chance of becoming addicted, patient B has a 4% chance. I mean, that might influence what you decide to prescribe as well. So I have chronic back pain. Yeah. So I've been going to a yeah. chiropractor. So that's yeah. been for, for some reason, the best thing for me. But when I was going through the pain management phase, uh, if I used them too much, I couldn't get them. The, the pharmacy would be like, no, we're not refilling this. Like you went through that first 24 pills, like, you know, too yeah. quickly. Four days later, I was like, whatever, I don't care anymore. And I just didn't go back to refill it. I mean, it seems like there are mechanisms in place to stop people from overuse or using too many at one time. Yeah, exactly. And what you've described is uh, called a prescription drug monitoring program. So all 50 states have them. They've really, this is the kind of scary part, really only uh, many states have only implemented those in the last few few years. Mm. And so, you know, I moved here uh, in December from Ohio. Uh, and so in Ohio, it was really only around uh, 2014, 15 when they implemented the, the program there. So before then, what you would have would be people going uh, to sometimes multiple physicians. We call that, you know, uh, double doctoring or even pill mills where basically physicians, all they're doing all day is writing prescriptions for pain medications. There was um, kind of a, often they do a kickback program with pharmacies and they were kind of in on it together. And we call those pill mills. So a lot of those were broken up in states like Ohio, like Florida. And so these programs have been implemented at the state level. So different states where essentially it it essentially makes physicians go through a number of, of hoops uh, before they can prescribe and would have quantity limits as well. So just like you, you've experienced. And so the idea is that that then cuts down on, again, double doctoring, people going to physician A, getting a prescription, then going to physician B, because it's a centralized database in that state. And so it really, um, that's been one of the more effective mechanisms for reducing, um, you know, at least the prescription uh, opioids as, as well. The nation has had, and especially in political science, we talk about you know, federal powers versus state powers and, yeah. and where's the proper authority for different resources? Does it rest, you know, with the president or Congress or with the state? And we talked about this, about the, the coronavirus pandemic, yeah. you know, is it proper for the federal government to handle this or the states? Do you, do you think there's the same type of argument or debate going on for for this crisis? Like, with, should the national government just step in and say, no, there's going to be a, a database nationwide, yeah. you know, a clearinghouse where we keep track of all this, or or is it better handled by the state? Yeah, it's, you know, again, that's probably another uh, answer. Is that it's a bit of both, because clearly, for example, the FDA approves new medications. So you could say, well, maybe part of it's their fault. Are they approving medications that really we don't have the evidence that, that we really need to look at? Certainly the federal, uh, there is some federal jurisdiction, um, but um, certainly um, in this case, you know, the, the practice for physicians or pharmacists or nurses, those are at the state level. So there's a state board that, that governs those, those professions. And so in many cases, it's really state governments that have become more active because they're kind of, for example, in that case, controlling what a physician can or cannot prescribe, that's done at the state level. I think, you know, the idea of having a national database, though, you know, would, would certainly make a lot of sense. Some countries have done that. I'm originally from Canada. So, for example, 
Um, medication errors, another topic I'm interested in. Canada has a centralized database for that, so it really helps across the whole country. The United States does not have that. And yeah. so I think in some cases that almost going back to, you know, political science, that balance of powers between what the federal government can do and the state government. Sometimes in the United States, it's a good thing with those division of powers. In this case, I think a central nationalized database and, and, and standardized policies across states would make a lot of sense. Do you have any information on or data? And I know this is still relatively new from the pandemic, uh, but on how the lockdowns and the pandemic affected the opioid crisis, any sense of a yeah, yeah, and certainly there is some evidence that it, it has exacerbated the problem. And I would say, just for example, if you look at the, you know, the volume of prescription um, uh, opioids that have been prescribed, because of things like we talked about, these prescription drug monitoring programs, we, we have seen a decrease since around 2018. Uh, and then this past year kind of threw a wrench into that. We also saw a decrease in opioid overdose deaths. Um, generally uh, compared to 2017, so a decrease in 2018, a decrease in 2019, some states have seen a spike again in 2020. And if you think about it, you know, the fact that, you know, this certainly the, the, um, the crisis has exacerbated a lot of mental health issues, yeah. um, you know, and, and it's, you know, to be honest, like some folks that maybe are, you know, at home, they're bored. Right. Um, just things, things like that have contributed to it. So um, I think, you know, as we look back, you know, we're, we're going to learn a lot from from the, the COVID crisis and, and how it's uh, had unintended effects in, in other areas. And I think you're, you're exactly right. The opioid crisis is one area where, um, unfortunately, it's had a negative impact. I ask this a lot of my guests. How do you separate studying something and researching something that's pretty gut wrenching, you know, when the you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths and, you know, it can tear families apart, just addiction overall. How do you balance your research from like you and stay yeah. mentally, you know, capable and healthy yourself when you're doing all this kind of research into the effects of this? Yeah, and I think it's it's very easy to almost get sucked into that ne that negativity. Um, and, you know, and, and I would say it's even a greater problem for those frontline health professionals. And, and I'll just share something with you. At, at the University of Cincinnati at, at UC Health, where I was previously, I, I co-chaired the opioid task force. And um, I, I still remember this. this was August 2019. We were having someone from the governor's office tour our emergency department to look at what we were doing. Um, and just before she, she arrived, I got there a few minutes early, and I was speaking with the emergency room physician who was part of our task force. And we were just kind of making small chat. And he looked tired. He had just worked a night shift. And he confided in me, you know, that night they had uh, 13 opioid overdose deaths, or, or not deaths, but cases that came into the emergency department. So if you wow. think about that, you know, a night shift and just constantly you're dealing with, you're putting out fires and, and trying to help people and, you know, in many cases, administer dose after dose of, of uh, Narcan, uh, naloxone, which is the main medication given in, in overdose uh, cases, it can be, be pretty disheartening. So you're right. So certainly there is that challenge. I think on the positive side, Though there are a lot of neat strategies that that can help, and we have made it's, it's certainly is a crisis that we have made progress. And so, uh, on a more positive side, one other thing I did in, in the city of Cincinnati, um, their fire and police departments have come together and formed what they call quick response teams, in that they show up at a residence where an overdose happened. So they sh show up unannounced two to three days later, basically saying that the person 
Did they get into rehab? How are they doing? And so one morning I did a drive along. I was part of the, the police and fire departments. They were showing up unannounced. And you could see how some folks really appreciated the follow up and showing that they're care and, you know, kind of maybe viewing their police department in a different light than the community engagement. Like, exactly. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. So those are quick response teams. There's a few cities, um, you know, a few in Rhode Island and Ohio and others that are. Uh, have started this maybe about three, four years ago and starting to spread across the country. So you see some positive come, come out of that. You know, with, with pain control in general, one challenge that's come out of this is have we gone too far on the other continuum? People that rightly, you know, have are in severe pain, need medications, whether it's, you know, chronic back pain or whatever, is it now so difficult where a lot of physicians are saying, you know, I'm just not even going to prescribe this because I'm going to get audited by my state? Because, again, these are effective medications that for most people, you know, they're, they're not going to become addicted. Um, so getting that sweet spot is challenging, too. So I think there's been a little bit of pushback. You know, have we gone maybe too far? And now are there people suffering uh, needlessly? Needlessly because yeah. the doctor is afraid of getting right. brought up or investigated. Yeah. yeah. That's a tough issue. I mean, that's a hard situation to be in as right. a as a doctor. I recently ran into an old friend, and this is last week. I hadn't seen him in a decade. He said the whole world united against COVID nineteen, but you couldn't pay a politician to do something about the opioid crisis. And it really just like, I, I mean, I was speechless. I was like breathless because I was like, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen the news talk about this. It was right before COVID. That's yeah. all you saw in the news a lot about. I wonder if there are comparisons between the two. Or, or in your, just your opinion, you know, why something was done so quickly about COVID-19, but so little legislative about opioids? I mean, is yeah. there something in, in your industry that... Yeah, you know, that's, uh, hey, that's a fantastic question. I hadn't really kind of thought of that, about that before. Uh, you know, one area of, of interest of mine uh, in research in general, what I, what I teach as well, is health policy. Uh, and I think, you know, unfortunately, we have a number of things, this kind of littered uh, history of kind of bad things we're doing in society that really require kind of new approaches to health policy, and it, and it almost takes a crisis till till we till mm -hmm. we get there. And um, you know, I think in, in fair, fairness, I think you know states and federal government have have stepped up. So you know, uh, under President Obama's administration, did some important things that were continued actually under President Trump and, um, and the Surgeon General Drone Adams. Um, you know, certainly made it a priority when he was Surgeon General until uh, very recently. You know, the opioid crisis was. A declared national emergency. But it, I think the challenge is there's not like one simple thing. So it's not like developing a vaccine, right? Mm. And and um, then, you know, hopefully that will eradicate COVID. So the opioids, I mean, decreasing prescribing is, is part of it. Um, you know, um, getting better uh, re rehabilitation, better preventive strategies, maybe better medications to combat uh, overdoses as well. So, but it's it's not kind of sometimes politicians like one simple solution that right. they can tote and say, you know, I've done this. The opioid thing's messy. It's messy. And so uh, I think that's that's part of it. What's, what's interesting, though, is that um, uh, the states certainly have become very engaged in lawsuits against the pharmaceutical companies. Michael Moore, not, not the uh, filmmaker, but a different Michael Moore, who was the attorney who led... Uh, against the tobacco industry, against British Petroleum with the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, he's been working with a number of attorney generals and and uh, kind of leading a lot of lawsuits uh, against drug companies, drug wholesalers, and others. So I think the states, when they, when they see some money perhaps involved, they've been 
been very engaged in. in there was those. like just recently a record payout for the opioid, right? There, there's been kind of record after 200, record. 300 million yeah, or something. So, you know, Purdue Pharma and some of the drug companies. But actually, you know, the real money, and this is where I think a lot of it is headed, is just um, the, the wholesale companies like McKesson. What was their role? Because they knew which, which, which pharmacies were, were filling which orders for medications. Um, they knew which which physicians were prescribing, so you know why weren't they doing anything about it? So it's it's also again you know what's the role of of the physicians? What's the role of pharmacists, of drug companies, of wholesalers? It's a it's a pretty wide net that you can cast as far as folks that maybe played a role in this. So there is some culpability to pharmacy companies to doctors prescribing it. So it's not all on the person. Uh, that gets addicted like there was in some instances people over prescribing purposely or, or clearly yeah there were uh, definite pill mills that were happening in states like ohio like florida where uh, federal officials came in and there's been prosecutions um, both uh, pharmacists and physicians that have lost their licenses and clearly if you look at the volume of opioids it was clearly just writing one prescription after another and then filling that so i see the pharmacies uh, or the, the you know the pharmaceutical companies profit right so yeah. they obviously want to push it. What's the prescribing doctor get out of this when they overprescribe? Well, essentially, you know, revenue from that patient visit, so they can charge for for that patient visit, oh, wow. and then of course the pharmacy, you know, the profit from filling the prescription. Um, so yeah, so clearly, you know, the, and, and again, you know, this is certainly a minority of physicians, a minority of pharmacists. I'm not, you know, I'm a pharmacist myself. So, um, and clearly I think, you know, most health professionals have, have good intentions, but at the same time, clearly that was part of the problem. I think, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is interesting. There's a study published in JAMA, which is one of the top two, you know, medical journals, uh, in the country, uh, two years ago that found that areas of the country that there was more money spent by pharmaceutical companies on advertising opioids, those same areas had higher rates of prescribing and then also problems with addiction too. So clearly there's a, and also there was some, you know, uh, there's some controversy over, you know, um, how forthright were drug companies on the addictive properties of these drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, uh, some of these drugs are, are quite old and, you know, um, they were kind of advertised in the you know '50s and '60s as being kind of cures for everything. When you know, really, they they sh- there should have been more warning about the addictive properties. I mean, it sounds almost akin to the tobacco, right? I think it's, that's probably why Michael Moore, you know, got got hired uh, by some of the attorney generals to to represent that. So, so I think that's part of it. I think the you know the other development because I, I I don't want to put all the blame on kind of drug companies and, and physicians and, and and pharmacists and others and drug wholesalers is the development of synthetic uh, uh, opioids. And so what's that those, mean? So those would be like they would be developed, um, you know, kind of um, it could be essentially almost like if you think like a, a, a moonshine, somebody who's making, you know, alcohol kind of in their back lab, these would be medications that are, are made, you know, um, in a, in a, someone's own, they, it doesn't take a whole lot to, to, to make these. Um, and then certainly one drug in particular, uh, fentanyl, uh, fentanyl is a drug that's a very potent, more potent than, than morphine or, or heroin. Um, very fine, you know, white, white powder. You don't need a whole lot. So it's perfect if you're a drug dealer to mix that, to cut it, you know, with other uh, medications because it's highly addictive as, as well. So you have, you know, customers coming back uh, for that. Um, unfortunately, some, and, and what's, what's kind of scary as well is that, um, and I remember we had uh, one of the speakers when I was at University of Cincinnati uh, in my college was a, a local police chief. Um, Tom Sidon, and he was saying, you know, I'm not going to tell you, but he would say, I can order fentanyl from China, 
I know the websites. I can have it shipped to me in about a week, and it goes through customs and everything. It's undetected. And so I think that's the other challenge. You know, some of this is also coming in from com- countries like China um, that because it's such a small quantity, right? We're not talking about, you know, hiding big bushels of, of drugs. It's um, such a small quantity is needed that you could then cut with, with other medications. Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, I mean, if you felt comfortable, can you tell us how and why you got into studying this? Uh, what led you to your particular research and teaching interest? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you know, certainly I, I'm a, a pharmacist and also a PhD trained pharmacist. So, so my whole career ha- have um, been involved in in research. And you know, I think for for me personally, I think was living in Ohio. Oh, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, Craig at the start of the podcast, some of the states have been more, uh, unfortunately, impacted by the crisis. Ohio is, is one of those. In fact, the uh, the number one county for a number of years in the entire country as far as incidents of uh, uh, opioid overdose deaths was Montgomery County, which is the county where the city of Dayton in Ohio is. That was about 50 minutes north of Cincinnati, so kind of in our our same metropolitan area. Morgues were, were, were full in Dayton. You couldn't fit anyone else in there because of the number of, of deaths um, and just the, the the impact. So so when I was living in Ohio, kind of seeing the impact of this crisis, I kind of felt, well, you know, I'm a healthcare researcher. I'm a pharmacist. This is something I should be involved in. It was interesting. I ended up um, getting uh, grants from the state really to evaluate how effective their strategies were. So we were kind of uh, uh, independent, academic, kind of third party looking at, you know, these things like prescription drug monitoring programs, like prescribing guidelines, um, like making uh, naloxone available at, at pharmacies without a prescription, would, did they actually work? And so it was kind of, was, was neat to kind of be involved in that. The cool thing of the role of academia and universities like AU is that we can play a role in helping with the problems that our communities are facing. Um, and so I think that's that, you know, I think in even th- this podcast, right? So you're, you're fostering discussion on these important topics. And so to me, it's especially public research universities, we have a special calling in life and uh, we need to be in- engaged in problems that our, our communities are facing. So you directly had an impact on policy, policy discussions on this in Ohio. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it that's was awesome. It, you know, I think that's like the, whenever that, ha- it doesn't happen very often in your career as a researcher, but when those moments happen, um, it was kind of cool. And then part, part of my research team at Cincinnati was involving a geographer and we were looking at the spread of the opioid crisis. So a year ago in March, uh, 2020, when COVID started, this geography and I, geographer and I started kind of talking like, you know, could we take the same techniques that we're using to look at the spread of the opioid crisis and apply them to the spread of COVID. And, and we did. And so we ended up, um, you know, publishing that, uh, doing some health policy briefs uh, for um, the governor's office in Ohio. And it was this cool moment, Craig, where it was a Wednesday. We, we, we looked at a brief looking at kind of urban rural differences in Ohio. Um, we, we sent it to um, uh, the medical director in the Ohio Department of Health on a Wednesday afternoon. The next day on a Thursday, the governor had a press conference and he had our map behind him what? talking about it. And I'm thinking <laughs> so like, oh, cool. my goodness, that is like, you know, the ultimate, you know, heaven or nirvana for, for a health policy researcher is, you know, to, to have that. And again, I think that's the value of public research universities like AU. And we've seen that, of course, you know, predates me here, but the impact that AU has had on, on COVID-19. Yeah, that sounds like you were doing medical intelligence, uh, intelligence yeah, surveillance. So. That's something that the intelligence and security studies is trying to team up with right now with operational medicine uh, downtown is to create some type of medical intelligence, intelligence surveillance of infectious disease, of crises that we can really okay. investigate and map out using uh, Intel fusion centers. 
That's a, that makes to... a lot of sense. No, I'm really, really pleased to hear that, Craig. And I think, yeah, there's so much potential with, with that kind of interdisciplinary uh, research. I'm such a dork. This stuff excites me so much. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, you can do this and this and this. I mean, we're talking about serious issues, but there's so yeah. much that we can do. I tell my students, you know, anytime they write a paper, they, they can't have a fluffy conclusion. Their conclusion has to be yeah. policy relevant. It has to yeah. have implications and bring it back to the real world. Because, you know, often people accuse academics of just being, you know, ivory tower elitist or something. But... I think if you get into it for the right reasons, and I get, got into it to be, poly, you know, yeah. I saw things and I went, well, you know, why does war happen, you know, in my area of expertise? How do I stop it? You know, it's exciting to talk to somebody who's had that kind of real experience. Well, and I share the same geekiness, nerdiness that you do with, with uh, policy and the impact. And I think sometimes what's more fascinating are the unattended uh, effects. And so I remember early on as a graduate student, there was a study published in the Journal of Medicine that looked at the state of New Hampshire and they imposed, they, they thought they were, um, Medicaid patients were, were prescribed too many drugs. And that, you know, there's probably some truth behind that. And so the state put a cap saying, you know, you can't get more than X number per month. Well, what happened is, yes, that reduced the number of prescriptions, but it had this kind of water balloon effect. You squeeze down on one side and it pops out in the other. And mm -hmm. what was happening is there were more emergency department visits, more hospitalizations. And to me, it always kind of stuck out. You know, that's, that's, it's, there's always these unattended effects of policy, right? And just like we talked about with the opioid crisis, you know, it's good intentions to try to reduce the number of probably of opioids that are prescribed, but the unattended is, you know, have we gone too far? Are there people now with, with pain that just can't get the, the drugs they need? I mean, it sounds like this health policy and, and, uh, the pharmacy professionals fit into the liberal arts and studying the human condition. You might be onto something there as well, right? So. <laughs> All the focus is on STEM, but I think yeah. you know, we need to focus on the human side yeah. as well. And uh, for cyber operations, for health policy, this this human condition is important, and we often forget about that in the in the classroom and and just in public in general. Like you know, yeah, I think you know, and certainly when you um, you know you hear the the stats of the opioid crisis, you know, it's it's concerning. But when you think of individual lives, right, that yeah. have been impacted by this, um, that's where you're right. It really starts to to, to be be real. And what's interesting, actually, one of one of our um, physicians who was part of this task force I chaired in Cincinnati, who was very open with this, he was an emergency room physician who had opioid addiction at one point in his career. Yeah. And so you think about the how he overcame that, and just kind of the value that would bring the richness to, to his interactions as he's helping patients, you know, with this addiction as well. Well, here's the million dollar question, right? How can we help the situation? Uh, what can we as members of society do to help solve the opioid crisis specifically, but maybe with, you know, issues with addiction overall, how, how can we be better humans at, at helping this issue? Yeah. I'll kind of answer it maybe in, in a broad context. You know, certainly one thing that COVID-19 has exposed is that, um, in the United States, we do a fantastic job of kind of intense medical intervention. So things like ventilators, hospitalizations. I mean, we're world leaders, right? So if a world leader is sick, where do they go? The Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, you know, right. places like that. But one area where we're, I think, far behind other Western developed countries is kind of a public health infrastructure, right? And uh, if you think of, you know, COVID-19 as an example, and I you know, do not want to go into, into politics at all, but <laughs> but certainly, um, again, the development of the vaccine, a huge, and if you look at, at our vaccination rates, we're, we're, you know, kicking it out of the ballpark. But as far as the infection rates at the early phase, not not, not so good compared to many other Western developed uh, countries. And I think, um, to me, you know, the opioid crisis is another thing where that crisis in part has 
was really made worse because we don't have great, um, you know, uh, rehabilitation facilities and prevention strategies and education. Um, again, if somebody certainly uh, has an overdose and they show up in an emergency department, they're going to get great care, right? Whether that's AU Health or another hospital, but it's that prevention. Could we have prevented that overdose to begin with? And then once they they had they get that treatment, you know, in that, that acute event, then what? Are they going to show up in the emergency department again? And I think that's what's really frustrating too, and often to, and contributes to burnout with health professionals is that you know they see the same patients again and again and again. So that, again, that that public health kind of system behind the scenes, um, again, that we really could have used in, in COVID-19, we could have used with the opioid crisis, we're, we're still lacking in that in the country. And again, you know, maybe that's the role of, of uh, federal funding is to provide, you know, we have the CDC, of course, we're blessed to have them right here in Georgia. Um, so what's the role of the federal government for, for public health funding? Yeah, and it's, you know, I recently published a COVID piece examining whether or not COVID is a threat to national security. Doing the research, I was astonished at how the United States is so far behind at viewing health security as an actual security apparatus, as something that can threaten the United States economically. Uh, I mean, how many people have to die of something before it becomes a threat to our our country? And certainly, I mean, we argue that COVID is the perfect example of this type of threat, but a lot of these spontaneous new discovered infectious diseases fall under that. And we're discovering like one every year at this point, something that's dramatically horrible, but it it seems to be such a a topic that politicians don't want to touch because it's, it's not WMD, it's not terrorism, it's not warfare. So it's hard to, to wrap people's mind around that. It's an actual, you know, at least economic threat. If it's not a, a, a person threat, (laughs) a human security threat is what we call in political science. Yeah, I think you're onto something with that as well. And if you think, I think part of it is, uh, again, there's maybe not one quick intervention that that solves all these health health problems. And, you know, in many ways, of course, the the U.S. is the outlier of not having, and again, I'm not not necessarily advocating that, but it's been interesting. Um, Again, we we don't have a central kind of, um, you know, government kind of funded uh, insurance system. And again, it's just been interesting, you know, as, uh, as listeners can, can tell, as you introduced, I'm originally from Canada. I'm a dual citizen. So kind of just as a health professional, both my wife and our health professionals, we've worked in both countries and just seeing, you know, there's, it's too bad we can't take parts maybe of the Canadian system where, you know, for example, if a Canadian loses their job, they don't have to worry about losing their insurance. Everything is covered in the hospital, emergency departments. They have that public health infrastructure after the SARS outbreak about a decade ago. They really, for example, Canada really invested in that. Um, and you've seen that with with uh, the COVID-19 numbers, their infection rates have been uh, ridiculously low. Uh, but then, of course, in the U.S., we have this, you know, the innovation, right? And, and again, the access to care, um, which is really important as well. Um, and so that's the challenge sometimes in Canada. I think of my own parents that still live there. It's it's often they, they can't even access a primary care physician and they go to the emergency department for that kind of care, which we don't want. Viewing uh, health as a, sec- you know, a security risk, security threat is right on. It definitely should be considered in that way. This has been awesome. I don't want to hold you too long. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Everybody, listeners, viewers, make sure to follow us on social media. Like us, subscribe, share, comment, email. We are at beyond underscore bias underscore podcast on the gram. Our YouTube channel is beyond bias podcast channel. 
Feel free to email us suggestions, comments, questions, anything at all, recipes at beyondbiaspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, follow me, your host, at Dr. Craig D. Albert on all your typical social media outlets. Dr. McKinnon, is there a way for listeners to follow or, or keep up with you and what you're doing? Yeah, certainly. Uh, as the provost at uh, AU, my uh, Twitter and Instagram handle is AUG underscore provost, AUG underscore provost. And uh, yes, it's where, you know, again, a public research university. It's always great to hear from the, the public for sure. That's awesome. Thanks so much for, for taking time out of your busy day to, to being here and to t- talking with me. I know everybody's going to love this. And as always, we're going to end with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the eminent social and political philosopher. And I tried to pick one to fit into today. Quote, everybody feels the evil, but no one has courage or energy enough to seek the cure. End quote. Be nice to someone today and know that you are loved. <laughs>